Welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth. The Great Recession is still impacting our politics, our policy, and our lives. You remember that one, right? The Great Recession? I'm talking about the recession that was sparked by the 2008 financial crisis, not the one sparked by COVID in 2020 that we're still working our way out of right now. For our younger listeners or anybody who needs a refresher, here's what happened. The second biggest economic downturn in American history behind only the Great Depression officially occurred from December 2007 to June 2009. While the causes were likely multiple and are still being debated by economists, it's generally recognized that the collapse of the housing market, brought on by easy credits, insufficient regulation, and toxic subprime mortgages, led to this economic crisis. Millions of Americans lost their homes and the unemployment rate exceeded 10%. It's estimated that U.S. households lost a combined 16.4 trillion, with a T, trillion, during this economic debacle. Today, I am going to speak with David Sirota, a journalist, author, and political strategist who has helped produce a new podcast series called Meltdown, available now on Audible, that examines the response to the financial crisis of 2008 and subsequent recession. David draws a straight line from the Great Recession to the election of Donald Trump in 2016 Point A, however, on that line isn't the recession itself, but rather the inability to provide meaningful help to regular Americans in its aftermath. In Meltdown, he narrates us through an eight-part series that takes us from Bogota to D.C. to New York and beyond, and he invokes an Indiana Jones analogy at the outset, arguing that we need to find our way along that red line to the X that marks this spot in our history to unearth what he calls the political disaster that helps us understand why we are where we are now. The assault on democracy, the rise of white nationalism and other troubling trends in our politics today, says David, can be traced back to that X. And you know what? I think he, I think he has a pretty good point. You're also going to get a Hollywood side dish here today with your plate of politics as we get into a new movie coming out later this year called Don't Look Up, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, maybe you've heard of him, and Jennifer Lawrence. Mr. Sirota helped create the story for that movie, so we delve into it. This is a good one. I think you're going to like it. Let's get to it. Here's my conversation with David Sirota. David Sirota, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So I thought I would begin by just shooting from the hip and trying to characterize the various phases of U.S. economic history since I've been born, just as a means to to uh, set the table. And then you can critique my critique. How about that? Sure. All right. Here we go. So I was born in 1978. Jimmy Carter was president at the time. And um, his tenure was characterized in large part by an energy crisis that resulted, among other things, in uh, high gas prices and long lines at the pump. 
this phenomenon uh, called stagflation, which is a stagnant economy uh, that's paired with inflation on prices. Uh, he lost the, the election in 1980 to Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan's years are characterized as the dawn of this grand deregulation push uh, that continued for years. It's characterized, I think, in, the, in, the, in our popular memory as a, a time of great wealth creation. I think that's how we remember it. I think if you, you can dig in on whether that's true or not, but it's characterized as like this heyday of uh, people making money and reversing uh, course from the, the terrible times of, of the late 70s. Um, as you go into the 90s, into the Clinton years, I would characterize that as a slight moderation, perhaps, on uh, the economic policies uh, of the 80s, really actually beginning in 88 when you had George Bush characterizing Reaganomics as voodoo economics, as a, as a critique on supply side. But really, the, the Clinton years were, of course, about political triangulation. And I would argue that his economic policy came from really the exact same place as the Reagan conservative uh, economic policy in terms of beginning with the premise that deregulation and markets are inherently good and just adding some, uh, softening the edges, if you will, uh, of that uh, in a way that was uh, palatable to an electoral majority. And I would argue that really that sort of thinking continued into the 2000s as well. Between the 90s and the 2000s, the early 2000s, you had a speed bump in terms of a, the dot-com the dot-com bubble uh, around 01, but really the, the reigning philosophy from DC was largely the same, I would argue, when it comes to economic policy in the 90s and in the early 2000s uh, with both parties. And then in 08, you have this meltdown, this financial crisis that really caused a rethink, even in, uh, among people like someone who I would say is like the Yoda of deregulation, uh, Alan Greenspan, former Fed chair, went before Congress and basically said he was wrong, uh, which I remember watching that hearing at the time, just being stunned that he admitted it. And now we're in this era uh, that's, it's, I would say it's a jump ball at best. And we can get into you know, what the consequences and what the current political thinking is as a, as a reaction to what happened in 08. But uh, at first, what do you think of my critique? Well, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, I think in general, you're right. I think the the Reagan era started in 1980 and 80 really with the election of 80 and then 81. Uh, and I think it carried all the way through to 2008. And, and in in some ways, I would argue it even beyond. Uh, that is to say that the assumptions baked into policy and politics that started in 1980, and it's not to say that it started abruptly, but that, were, that crescendoed in, in the 1980 election, those assumptions defined American politics and uh, economic policy all the way through 2008, and in some cases, in some ways, I would argue, beyond. Uh, you know, it's been called the Washington Consensus. That's another way to put it. And it's deregulation mixed with privatization, mixed with fiscal austerity when it comes to, to domestic spending, non-defense domestic spending. And that was the paradigm uh, for years and years and years. Uh, and I think that the fight that it it ultimately culminated in, in outside of the political arena in the financial crisis and the financial collapse uh, 
that that's what deregulation uh, and uh, rampant speculation and a kind of me-focused greed-is-good economy ended up delivering. And the podcast series that I did with Alex Gibney takes a look at what happened um, after the financial crisis itself, that the financial crisis itself was a financial meltdown. What we look at in this podcast called Meltdown is the political meltdown that happened after the financial crisis and how the political meltdown led uh, to first the Tea Party and then ultimately to Donald Trump. And the basic premise is that the Democrats got into office in a, in a situation much like 1932, 1933, massive crisis, economic crisis, millions of people hurting. Uh, they were, you know, crises based on different things, 32 and, and, and 2008, but the broad strokes are, are similar. And they had a huge mandate for real structural change. And in fact, the party promised real structural change. Uh, And what the party ended up doing with its majority, uh, and it had a big majority in Congress and a president who didn't just kind of eke himself into the White House, who had won a huge mandate, uh, they used that power to essentially fortify the existing uh, economic system rather than to reimagine it in any way. Uh, that Barack Obama had been had gotten a record amount of money from the from Wall Street. Uh, he had made all sorts of promises and was popular because he made all sorts of promises that he was going to prosecute Wall Street, accountability on Wall Street. Uh, pe- uh, the government would be focused on directly helping people. And if we're being really honest about it, that's not what happened. Uh, no bankers were prosecuted. Uh, various policies to help people were uh, watered down or killed before they even went into w- w- were enacted. Um, th- uh, Obama engineered a, a bailout uh, that uh, gr- he helped forge uh, in right at the end of the 2008 election, uh, and then he oversaw and he had uh, authority to do almost whatever he wanted with that money, and he continued the policies of a kind of top-down bailout, which gave a handful of financial institutions most of the money, as opposed to using it as a bottom-up support for people, uh, to homeowners and people who are being uh, foreclosed on. Uh, He chose chose essentially continuity rather than change. And what ended up happening is that that was a disillusioning experience for millions and millions of Americans. And that experience created the conditions, the optimal conditions for uh, a dishonest huckster like Donald Trump to take advantage of it, to portray himself as the guy who was going to fix things. And the reason this story is important is because it's a cautionary tale about, I believe, what Democrats should not do again when they now have uh, power, a fleeting window of power, that if you run that history back, you should expect the same results. And the same results could be, frankly, worse. It could be Donald Trump or worse. So you draw a straight line from the financial crisis of 08 to Donald Trump in Well, I, I, and to be clear, it's not just me who draws that line. The quote from, from Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's consigliere, uh, Steve Bannon said the legacy of the financial crisis is Donald Trump. That's a direct quote. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Another way to think about it, a way I've thought about it is really from 08 onwards, it was no longer viable 
to have an electoral majority that was centered on the economic component of movement conservatism. You could no longer, you know, just trot out uh, these lines about taxing and spending um, and deficits in the same way that was popular in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, uh, because people were so disillusioned by, again, the meltdown of what happened in 08. And I think that what Donald Well, and I should, I should add, what, what the conservatives did to take advantage was they portrayed even the crumbs that were being spent to help people. They portrayed that as uh, uh, hardworking Americans being forced to subsidize the losers, quote unquote. That was the big right. rant heard around the world. From, makers and takers. Yeah, makers and takers. You know, the rant heard around the world was Rick Santelli on CNBC calling people being thrown out of their homes losers, saying we should help people, uh, not just people who drink the water, but the, you know, the people who carry the water. Uh, it was some really ugly stuff. And I think that the, 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 the trick was that that the Obama administration fell into, they got uh, enchanted by uh, all of uh, of that. They got mesmerized by it. They they tried then to appeal to to instead of ignoring that nonsense and plowing forward, they quickly also turned to austerity. I mean, they in the in 2010 they turned to the deficit reduction commission to try to cut social security. Uh, They rescinded $300 billion of the TARP program, that's that bailout, before that money could have been directed to homeowners. So I think the, I I would change your interpretation only in this way, which is that I think the arguments about deficits and we have to be, you know, fiscal austerians was something that still remained prevalent in Washington, D.C., but was entirely tone deaf to what was actually happening in the country. Uh, And I think that the Democrats basically didn't figure that out. Uh, And they were so enthralled uh, to their Wall Street donors that they were focused first and foremost on rescuing the banks. That's, by the way, that's not even my interpretation. I mean, there's a direct quote from Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary at the time. Uh, The the phrase was foam the runway, that he told Elizabeth Warren and Neil Borofsky, who was the inspector general of the TARP program, he told them. At one point, reportedly, he turned to them and he said, listen, you don't understand. We're only trying to, and I'm paraphrasing here, but we're only trying to slow down foreclosures, not necessarily uh, halt foreclosures, because what our real priority is, is foaming the runway for the banks. And so I think that happened. (laughs) The runway was more than foamed for the banks by millions of human bodies that had been thrown out of their homes. and. People were pissed and they were willing to vote for uh, right wing uh, extremists uh, to express their rage. To, to drill in on that right wing extremists and why you know one would lead to, to the other, would you also say that as a result of what happened in 08 and in, in the aftermath, people were more willing to uh, believe, uh, perhaps correctly, that our institutions are bullshit, every, the economy is rigged? And we need a strong man to come and kick ass. And maybe this person cares about me. 
I, I the meltdown really is a meltdown in people's faith in their government to do anything other than empower the powerful and enrich the rich. And I think this was a moment uh, that had been a road that that feeling that the government is not on my side had been uh, intensifying for decades. Uh, Ronald Reagan, that's part of the Reagan era, a berating government. Uh, that was a huge cultural force uh, in, in our politics, by the way, in our pop culture. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, there I wrote a whole book uh, called Back to Our Future, which is about how political messages were baked in are and were baked into pop cultural products. I mean, look at some 80s movies uh, and, you know, the government is always doing something wrong. The private corporation or the, the private mercenary is always the hero. So people's faith in their government was eroding for decades. And the 2008 into 2009 situation was a chance to restore some of that faith, to say, hey, look, we're in the middle of a real emergency here, and the government can and will deliver a huge amount of help and be focused on helping regular people. And instead, what happened was the opposite happened. Uh, the, the fairly or not, and I think it's mostly fair, uh, the government looked like and was portrayed as only caring about the very wealthy. Uh, only caring about propping up the politically powerful. And I think that is a through line through much of the Obama administration, even, by the way, some of its good, you know, relatively good policies. Yeah, they, they, they pared back the stimulus bill because the budget, the fiscal austerians were making, they were still enthralled to the fiscal austerians. Uh, they, they did not take that TARP bailout and focus it on getting resources to uh, millions of homeowners. They focus it on getting resources to a handful of bankers. They did not reform the bankruptcy laws as Obama explicitly promised in a very populist way, reform those bankruptcy laws to make sure that the banks took some losses and it wasn't just homeowners who got stomped. Uh, and even in their health care bill, I mean, their health care bill, the Affordable Care Act got rid of basically everything or most things most major things that the private health insurance companies didn't want. So the message kept coming, and they watered down their Wall Street bill. So the message kept coming through to people, you're getting foreclosed on, the rich are getting richer, they're being bailed out, the government is focused on essentially preserving a system of uh, 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 almost a, a feudal kind of system that's crushing millions of people. And that, the meltdown is, is people saying, believing the government can't do anything right. The, the, I have no faith in my government at all. And in a, in a certain sense, you, you can't fully blame people for coming to that or, or for feeling that. So I think that we still live in the meltdown because that still pervades so much of the culture. Now, I think it doesn't have to pervade so much of the culture. There have been examples where um, even recently, where policies are actually helping people in a very direct and obvious way. I think the CARES Act uh, that, that Donald Trump ended up signing, uh, the PPP program, none of these programs are perfect, but they provided an injection of real aid to people. Uh, you know, you could criticize pieces of those uh, of, of those policies. They, maybe they weren't targeted properly or the like, but they they did deliver help to people. I think Biden's first bill, the the rescue package uh, that provided 
real aid to people. Uh, so I, there's a way to change this and to rebuild some faith. But the point for this moment is, is that, especially when we talk about the, the giant spending bill they're debating now, if you keep paring it back, if you keep stripping things out of it that people were promised, uh, for instance, uh, lower drug prices and initiatives to take on the the to expand Medicare, uh, initiatives to take on the drug companies and the like. If you keep stripping them out, and and you've been promising voters those things, then you're only sowing potentially sowing more disillusionment. That the best way you can, the best chance you have to survive a midterm election and to really survive future elections is to show that you are serious about delivering on your campaign promises. And to do that, you have to be willing to break with your corporate donors. I've said this before and I'll say it again. The reason the Democratic Party seems so incoherent all of the time is because it is constantly trying to appease and enrich its corporate donors while telling voters that it is solving the problems created by those corporate donors. That that is an impossible thing to do. So when you try to do it, you sound ridiculous. You sound incoherent. You sound dishonest. I think the, I think the biggest example of that uh, would be the failure to include a component uh, in this bill that would allow Medicare to negotiate for drug prices in a way that would bring down the cost of drugs. This polls in the 80s, I think it gets a 60% Republican support. Um, it's not just a way to make drugs cheaper for seniors. It also uh, reduces costs from the government, which is, was a way to help pay for this entire bill. There's really no, uh, there's no reason other than, frankly, corruption to, to not pass this bill uh, or that component of the bill. And I think it's, that's the headliner in this package in terms of uh, reasons to be uh, cynical and upset, frankly, about the, the watered down. Uh, well, and, and I'll tell you, there, there was this this passage in Politico that really, to read the D.C. press is to read how people in D.C. are talking to each other. And it's always good to read the stuff because it, it, it reveals almost an honesty about how grotesque it is. And there was this amazing passage in Politico where, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was, it was, it was essentially in order for Democrats to get a to a final deal, they may have to water down or strip out the provisions allowing Medicare to negotiate lower prescription drug prices. By the way, a power that the Veterans Administration has, a power that almost every industrialized country's own healthcare systems have. It is absolutely ridiculous that uh, uh, Medicare hasn't been allowed to do this. The Democrats have been promising it for 15 years. So again, the political story says, in order for Democrats to get a deal on the final spending bill, they may have to water down or strip out this provision to allow Medicare to negotiate lower prescription drug prices that the Democratic Party has promised. And what's amazing about that is, is that Politico had recently published a story noting that allowing Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices is the number one thing that people in America, voters, say they want from this bill. Not one of the things, it's the single thing that they most want in this massive bill. So in other words, for the Democratic Party to pass its legislation, it was saying 
it may have to get rid of the thing that human beings in America most want. What message does that send about democracy? And this is a key point that I think we have, that a lot of folks have forgotten. If you keep promising voters that you're going to deliver promises to them, and then you get into power and you side with your corporate donors and don't deliver on those promises, you're not only potentially making bad economic policy, it's not only immoral to just continue letting people suffer with, for instance, high drug prices, you are sending a deeper message about democracy. You are telling people their votes don't matter. So that when you turn around and go to the polls and you say, hey, listen, you got to vote for us to prevent Donald Trump and the MAGA movement's assault on democracy. A lot of voters are potentially saying, listen, I just used democratic institutions to vote you into power. You promised me things. I don't remember getting those things. My life does not feel like it materially improved by using those democratic institutions. So your argument about protecting democracy, what do I care about that? Now, look, I don't think that means that everybody who has those feelings supports the assault on democracy, the effort to limit voting rights and the like. My point is, is that they is that it sows a disillusionment where it's just not as salient an issue to them. Ah, who cares? The you know voting rights go go away over here, and who cares about the assault on democracy there? I, I I vote, and it doesn't matter. So, what does democracy matter? And the thing is, is that what's amazing is is that is that FDR really understood this. Uh, it, so so there's history of the Democratic Party appreciating this particular point, the connection between delivering for people economically and the preservation of democracy. Fascism was on the rise in America in the Great Depression, and FDR at various points explicitly said that the, they had to pass the New Deal. They had to invest in the working class of the country to prevent fascists from taking advantage of the disillusionment that was growing. So I'm going to ask you to do something you're not going to want to do. Here it is. Okay. In the most empathetic way possible, how would you explain why Senators Manchin and Cinema are doing what what they're doing in the most empathetic way possible? Yeah, like what? Like what's going to? Is it, for example, that um, they are still making '90s and early 2000s era uh, calculuses about the political benefits of austerity pro- politics, and they think that you know, uh, trimming. Well, I can give you. I can like give you the thing. empathetic version. Okay, go ahead. And then I can give you the the empathetic but realistic version, and then I can give you the realistic version. So the, the fully empathetic version is Joe Manchin believes in, ideologically in his heart, believes in uh, fiscal austerity, the fear of the national debt. Um, he believes uh, in work requirements and means testing of programs because he believes that a sort of a so-called welfare state will discourage work and hurt the economy. Uh, I think uh, Kirsten Cinema, that would be, you know, some version of that. 
as well. Uh, she, she's flip-flopped on so many things, it's hard to, hard to describe. But, you know, for instance, on taxes, she was an opponent of, uh, of Donald Trump's tax cuts. She voted against them. Now she doesn't want to get rid of them. Uh, maybe, maybe she thinks, look, we, now that the tax cuts are already there, to uh, get rid of them would hurt the economy by jolting the economy at a, at a fragile moment. That's the fully empathetic version. The less empathetic version, although realistic, is they are making political calculuses that Joe Manchin doesn't think he can get reelected unless he kind of looks like a, and cinema probably, that maybe they've calculated that I need to look like a quote, different kind of Democrat. I need to look like a conservative Democrat in order to appeal to Republican uh, and independent voters in my Arizona, a swing state, although Biden won it, and uh, West Virginia, a much more Republican-leaning state. Okay, so that's the empathetic but cynical version. Uh, the I think what's actually going on is that it's it's the thing that it doesn't get focused on a lot for a couple of reasons. One, it's considered impolite in D.C. and uh, in, in in sort of elite circles, uh, and it's it's actually relatively uh, uninteresting in some ways because it's so simple is that they are corrupt. They're getting a massive amount of Joe Biden, Joe Manchin is getting a massive amount of money from the fossil fuel industry and is gutting the climate provisions. He also uh, has a family financial connection to the coal industry, a big one. That's his biggest source. It's been his biggest source of income is money from a coal-related business that his family owns. Kirsten Cinema is suddenly getting lots of money uh, from. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, she's raising a lot of money from wealthy people, uh, wealthy private equity folks who don't want their taxes raised. Uh, and I think that we don't like that. Uh, I think th there's a there's an aversion to that explanation because because we don't necessarily want to admit that it's just that simple and that grotesque. But usually, the simplest explanation is the explanation in real life. And I think that's really what's going on. And I, and I want to add one other point on the corruption point, which is it's not just, there's actually two other points. It's not just the money coming to their campaign. The other thing is, is that they may not want to draw moneyed opposition into their re-election battle. If it, I, this is forgotten a lot in the way people analyze politics, that part of uh, politics is about raising money so that you have enough money to put ads on on the air to run for re-election, the 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 uh, the the converse is also true. That part of doing legislators' calculation is fine. The pharmaceutical industry maybe they're not going to give me a lot of money, but if I do their bidding, they won't have a massive independent expenditure against me to destroy me. So I think there's sort of negative negative forms of corruption, and then I also think there's the promise of riches after. That this is also a hugely powerful force in our politics. That these oftentimes these senators are looking to the multi millions of dollars that they can make if they do industry bidding while in office. That that they can then go make lots of money as lobbyists and influence peddlers in Washington after they leave office. Let's rewind again to the financial crisis. You mentioned the Tea Party um, resulting from the crisis. There was also Occupy. And um, the 08 financial crisis also gave ri rise to a, a renewed progressive movement, did it not? 
Yes. I, I mean, I certainly think that the Occupy Wall Street movement was incredibly uh, important. Uh, and it was a, it was definitely a primal scream, a righteous primal scream uh, uh, of rage. I think the Tea Party movement and the Occupy uh, movement were uh, primal screams. Now, the difference is, is that the Tea Party movement had a lot more money behind it, uh, a lot more uh, political infrastructure, cynical, right-wing, Republican political infrastructure behind it. And Occupy had no Democratic Party uh, political infrastructure behind it. And that's why the Tea Party movement was a much more powerful electoral force. Uh, you know, I think there's an, in some ways, an overinterpretation of the idea that the Tea Party movement was was all artificial. I think there really were rank and file people out there who were mad at what was going on, and I think the political operatives, the coke-based political operatives behind who who were behind the kind of official Tea Party movement and the organizations, they managed to manipulate that opposition into what it, it into what it became. Yeah, I, I mean, even the name of it, Tea Party, s- suggests that it's more about, again, austerity, tax and spend issues. Whereas I think if you look at the videos from from that era, it was more about just general disaffection. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and not about not some high minded economic policy. It was, it was about they got screwed. They feel that they've been alienated. They don't trust the government. Um, but the party, or at least a, a component of the party, was trying to use them to peddle this this old message that uh, had worked in, in the decades before. Absolutely. And the Republicans managed to turn it into a partisan movement. And we have an episode in the series that touches on uh, Wisconsin and how Wisconsin had been a bastion of progressivism for, for decades. Uh, and there was a senator there, Russ Feingold, who was a populist Democrat with an independent streak, a kind of independent to the left, a kind of left version of independent. Uh, He voted against, uh, I believe he voted against the bailout. Uh, He voted against the Wall Street reform bill because he thought it was too weak. Uh, He had, uh, so he was like kind of a, kind of, I mean, we don't, there aren't that many Democrats like that anymore. Uh, He was sort of in some ways a uh, Bernie Sanders uh, Democrat who you would think would be best positioned as an incumbent Democrat to survive uh, a Tea Party uh, wave election. In other words, if there's going to be a Democrat who's going to survive a Tea Party wave election in a swing state, you would think it would be Russ Feingold because he wasn't your typical kind of Wall Street Democrat. He was a populist Democrat. And even he got uh, thoroughly beaten in his reelection. And I I say that because as an illustration of how the Tea Party movement really became a truly partisan weapon for the Republicans, that it may have started out as a kind of right of center, populist, uh, somewhat grassroots based uh, ideological movement. And ultimately, the political infrastructure of the Republican Party turned it into a partisan weapon. But at the same time, wouldn't you say that there's no way that Bernie Sanders does as well as he did in 16 or 20 without the 08 financial crisis? Oh, absolutely. Look, I, I think that's absolutely true. I, I think my, my interpretation of Bernie Sanders in, in 2016, and this is no disrespect to Bernie, a 
senator from a tiny state, the fact that a senator, by the way, who, if we're being honest, isn't the most charismatic guy in the world. And I've known Bernie for 20 years. I've worked for him. You know, I've he's I have a very you know, long relationship with him. So I don't mean this in dis- disrespectfully. I'm, you know, but not exactly, you know, the, the Bill Clinton level charisma I mean, with the saxophone and the right. Like, I mean, arguably an anti-charisma charisma. But my point is, is that not exactly a guy conventionally positioned to run a serious race for president. And the point in saying that is, is the fact that he was able to run such a an effective campaign against such a powerful, essentially incumbent uh, candidate, Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton may not have been the president, but she was the essentially an incumbent, uh, presumptive nominee with the entire party machine behind her. The fact that Bernie, a small state senator with kind of not that much conventional charisma was able to run such a, a a strong campaign against her and almost win is as much a commentary on his political skills i would argue it's more of a commentary on people feeling angry with the system itself that it actually it's like wow people must have been so mad People must have felt so frustrated that that it was that a, that a senator from Vermont uh, was able to almost win the nomination. A, a senator who's an independent, not even uh, uh, officially affiliated with the party, was able to almost win the Democratic Party nomination against the entire party machine. That is a an expression of how rightfully disappointed and frustrated people were after eight years of being promised real change and being given in many ways more of the same. So I'm going to pivot here for the last few minutes that we have, um, because it's not every day that we have a Hollywood heavyweight on the podcast. (laughs) Uh, on uh, On top of the podcast that you're releasing on Audible, you also have this huge Hollywood movie coming out with Leo DiCaprio. Right. Um, so if you wouldn't mind sharing, what's the, what's the origin story of, of how the story behind uh, the script got started and what, what's your connection to it? Sure. So the movie is called Don't Look Up. Uh, people may have seen previews and the like. They're everywhere now. It's going to be on Netflix. It's DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and Rob Morgan and Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill and Chris Evans. I mean, it's uh, Timothy Chalamet. I mean, it's insane. Uh, and it's the movie. It's a movie about a pair of scientists uh, who discover that an asteroid is headed towards Earth, and they have to go out uh, into the media and to government leaders to try to grab society by the lapels and try to get society to take this seriously to try to stop it. Uh, and the germination of the uh, and I I helped 
write the story of the movie, not the script, but the sort of overall story of the movie with Adam McKay, who's the director. Adam McKay is, you know, he did all the, the he did the Anchorman movies. He did a lot of the Will Ferrell movies in the past. He did the big short. He Vice. Did Vice. Yeah. yeah, right. Vice, one of the best movies ever. And and the, ger- the germination of it was, I had been saying for, this is years ago now, I had been saying for a while to McKay, listen, you got to try to do a climate movie, but it can't be like a post-apocalyptic uh, Mad Max-ish climate movie. You got to somehow use your amazing skills of comedy, but biting comedy and satire because it, it, it's both a hilarious movie, but also an important movie. I mean, he, you know, his movies are hilarious, but the, he, he has a real unique ability to mix comedy with, with a really, really uh, important set of messages. And so one day he calls me up and he goes, I think you have the idea for the movie. And I said, oh, great. Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, look, I've been reading your social media feeds and you keep using this metaphor for climate change that there's an asteroid headed towards Earth and nobody and, and nobody cares. And he said, I think there's a seed of a movie there. Maybe that's the movie. And that's the sort of germination of the movie. Now, I will say this. Some people think the movie is a climate movie. Some people think the movie is a pandemic movie. You know, the pandemic is an asteroid headed towards Earth. And and but it, and and actually what it ends up being without giving away what happens and the like. It's a movie that asks a, a core question. And the question is much more fundamental than even any individual issue. The question is, are we as a society, as a species, are we able anymore to be confronted with indisputable facts and rationally process those facts for rational civilizational responses? Or is our media, our political system, our society now so dominated by uh, industries that frivolize, that marginalize those facts that we can't even accept those facts and react to them and respond to them in a rational way. Because that, I think, really is at the core of really everything, whether it's the climate crisis or the healthcare crisis or whatever it is. We now, we know the facts of these crises. We know what these facts are. Let's just stipulate that we know climate change is happening. We have to reduce carbon emissions, as an example. The question is whether we are so interested in entertaining ourselves and whether there's a propaganda system that is so powerful to distract us or to polarize us, to politicize those things that we can't do what we know we need to do. I mean, the, the, and that's where it comes to the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic, there are things we know stop can, can reduce the spread of the pandemic. And even those things, have been politicized. Those things are now, like, if you can politicize a virus, what what will the system not politicize? And so that's the really scary question baked into this movie that is, and the movie is hilarious. uh, It's super entertaining. You'll laugh your ass off. But that is the question that the movie asks. And it comes out? It comes out around, uh, uh, I think it's going to be in theaters 
for a limited theater run in early December after Thanksgiving, and then it will be on Netflix uh, for a, you know global distrib- distribution uh, the week. I believe it's the week of Christmas. Okay, so Don't Look Up is the movie. It comes out around the holidays. You got to buy a ticket or a subscription to Netflix for that. But the podcast is free on Audible. Is that right? The, the podcast is, if you are not an Audible subscriber, you can get a 30-day free subscription and listen go. to the entire podcast. That's right. Free-ish. Free-ish. Yeah, free-ish. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been super entertaining. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was fun. If you agree, then please rate and subscribe. Also, a request. We're still debating uh, what we're going to do for our next episode. So if you have suggestions, please put them in the comments. We'd love to hear them. I'll catch you next time. Thank you.